Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Zhui Guo, where I ask her, what was everyday life like in early China? Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm so excited. We have a return guest today who is so fascinating. Welcome back, Professor Zhui Guo, who is a social and cultural historian of early China and a professor at Barnard College of Columbia University. Welcome back, Professor Guo. How are you? I'm good, Jonathan. Thank you for having me back. Your area of expertise is so fascinating to me. Just to give everybody a recap, we had Dr. Guo on a few months ago, and it was really about learning about early China. And my goal and that was to figure out what was like a day in the life of someone who lived in early China. But then I realized that I knew so little about the specifics of really the area and the time in which I was talking about. We almost kind of didn't get there. And so I do want to just give people a quick little recap, though, if maybe they didn't hear that episode. Uh, so, Professor Guo, can you just tell us what time briefly, what time period we're talking about and what geographic location we're talking about? Absolutely. So last time, I think we went actually a little bit beyond what we are going to focus on um, today. And um, so so last time we kind of gave a chronological introduction, particularly to the before before time, the before common era. And today I would like to focus on the first millennium before the common era. So we are going from year one back to year 1000, but BCE. So that's, that's kind of our uh, terminology. And geographically speaking, we will be focusing on what uh, we would call today China proper, meaning if you think about the map of China that uh, focusing on the, um, the south uh, east part. Um, so um, you got the Mongolia and the Inner Mongolia um, to the north, and then uh, the Xinjiang. Um, unfortunately, this is a, a, a area that actually has been in the news for quite a lot these days. But that's the uh, uh, northwest, and then we got Tibet. So these areas are not going to be the focus, uh, geographically speaking, for uh, today's conversation. And simply because the time period that we are talking about, uh, that those areas were, I think it would be fair to call they were neighbors. They were uh, nomadic neighbors, highland neighbors too. Um, that way, um, just just to um, sim- oversimplify things a little bit of the so-called the Chinese agrarian society that settled the Chinese uh, who largely living in village lives and most of them were farmers. Yes. So we're talking about early China, which the, the location that we are going to focus on is kind of like if you were to think about what's modern day China, it's kind of like central, like east. Correct. Right? Yes. Yes. So then in, the, in our first conversation, we really talked about like overall, we set the scene for early China. Today, we're I'm really curious about like jobs and what the, what a day was like there. But then it's like, this was you know, over a thousand years ago, through actually two, three thousand years ago. I'm still really bad at the math. Nothing's changed since then, since our first conversation. Um, 
But so we're talking about from 1000 BCE before Common Era up until like one. So how do you and your colleagues go about discovering what a day was like back then or even just a particular historical moment? What are you all working off of? That's such a great question. That's a question historians love because we always need to know what we are working off with. Um, so, um, to put it in simple terms that will work with, I would say, um, probably broadly speaking, two types of materials, our so-called our sources of evidence. And the one large group would be uh, material evidence. So things actually we can still see, we can still touch. Well, most of the time you cannot touch them anymore because <laughs> they are very fragile. But um, or sites you can still visit. Um, so and everything still exists today. We largely get to those sources through archaeology. But we also have a very large amount of written sources, meaning that people, uh, particularly the time period that we are going to focusing on today, uh, writing was already a mature technology. It's still very few people knew how to write, how to read, but there were, um, there were writings and increasingly so. So, um, so we have, uh, writings left from some of them were from the time that we will be talking about. Um, some of them were, you would say, maybe later recollections or people write about an earlier time. I think this obsession with the past uh, certainly were not new. So people were always fascinated with the past. So we have uh, different, we, this is why uh, a large part of traditional historians who work with documents um, need to know the date of your written sources. But these two are the, the broader category that the sources will work with. And in the past, um, that archaeologists or people, historians who work with material culture um, tend not to be very familiar with the textual culture um, and vice versa, because it's very difficult to master both kinds. For instance, the written part, especially because last time we talked about the, the writing uh, actually changed quite a lot. And we actually lost the ability to read some of the ancient script. And we need to reconstruct of knowledge of past scripts. So um, do not get, I don't want to get too deep into the, the kind of the specific fields, but just to make the point that um, colleagues that we, we generally identify as historians of early China, we uh, both need to know uh, the general outlook of our sources, but most of the time, the most uh, uh, fruitful work comes out of collaborations uh, because, you know, each of us specialize in a, in a specific kind of uh, sources, then we need to ask others and rely on their work to get to the fuller picture as full as possible. 
Ah, okay. That's fascinating. So what I hear you saying is, is that some people really are more historians, like going to the location, trying to deduce, like if there's writing on the walls or if there's like actual artifacts. And then there's other people who really study like the written history from the time, like whatever, like texts there are from that time. That's right. Right. Exactly. Yes. So China, in a sense, has a particular advantage uh, that is China has a pretty strong historical tradition, meaning that very early on that Chinese states um, had a, a, a particular, you call it obsession or you call it uh um, pra- to fulfill practical needs of the uh, state of the government that um, there is a very rigorous um, recording, history recording tradition. So this is the reason that the uh, number of historical, so-called historical texts that China has quite a lot. So working through of those historical texts uh, were uh, before archaeology became a thing, became that is a very new um, discipline in China. In fact, Chinese archaeology uh, became a hundred years old this year. This is a big celebration in Chinese archaeology. But compared to traditional text-based uh, historical studies, which goes uh, about 3,000 years old um, that we, um, for the vast majority of the time that most people learn about the past through writings, through writings from the past, through um, people's various genres, right, from purely tedious historical records to really beautiful poetry, literary pieces, or and anything in between. Uh, but archaeology, um, as I said, about a hundred years ago, really bring us um, to a, a, a very, comparatively speaking, very fragmentary type of sources. But nonetheless, many of them actually dated to uh, the time period that we are interested in to know more. And what you just said actually reminds me of um, uh, that you, because you said writings on the wall. Um, if we go a little bit of um, into the different types of sources, I would like to add that art historians are also uh, part of scholars of early China and now their work sometimes kind of goes between um, kind of people work with material culture versus work people work with texts uh, because they are looking at uh, pictorial visual materials and sometimes I think that they that is a very particular kind of sources as well and early China the time period we are talking about we also have quite a lot of that as well so that's what I wanted to add to because you mentioned that and then didn't didn't you say in our first time interviewing you I think this is one of the most fascinating things because isn't Chinese like the earliest written language Chinese as a written language, as a script, was actually not uh, as early as, let's say, from um, um, now we would call Middle East and ancient Mesopotamia or Egypt. Mm. Uh, but Chinese is a continuously used. Continuous language. That's right. Continuous language. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. And, and I also, I know. 
I'm getting into my mode, but I just want to make a distinction between language and writing. Um, so most, for the most part, we can equip them as language is something we speak is a spoken language and then writing as a, a, a material form reflect the spoken language, but that doesn't have to be the case. Sometimes you can use a script that doesn't necessarily reflect the written language. A good example, actually, we can use, uh, for instance, in Korean Peninsula, in uh, Japanese, that they also borrowed the script um, at least historically, and Japanese today still use the Chinese characters. They call it kanji, uh, but their languages are completely different. So, ah. um, so there that this is why that distinction is worth making. So yes, I love that, and then I also think it's really fascinating how you think about you know to get a more full picture of these histories. It's the written and it's the art and it's the archaeology. So given what we know about early China so far from what we've learned about, what can we know about, like, for instance, what homes would look like in early China? The time period we are talking about, I think, um, let me premise that first is we have very little evidence of actually what homes look like in terms of material evidence. And for one reason, one very particular reason, and that is um, Chinese architecture from very early on tend to be made of timber, meaning mm. they do not survive time very well. So, for instance, if you think about elsewhere, that stone was the main construction material that you can actually have houses from very, very early on and they can survive until this day. Unfortunately, Chinese buildings, um, for one reason or another, that have been using wood as the main construction uh, material for the upper part, meaning that what we would call house today. So archaeologically speaking, what we have, uh, we would say this is used to be a house. What we have actually were foundations or uh, mm. these, uh, these paler holes. And so coming back to your question about the evolution, how do we tell that with this uh, kind of a small hut versus this is actually a very spacious mansion or even palace? How do we tell that, right? Um, so what we need to tell, first of all, is the size of the foundation. That's usually a good sign, right? Um, so regular houses for a nuclear family, three to five people, then um, we can see it's going to be a relatively small footprint, so to speak, of that house. But if you have a complexes, we find houses in the period uh, that we are talking about, uh, the early part of that. So, so the early part of the first millennium BCE, there were large houses, large house complexes that a big house or almost like a big room right now we are looking at it can go as big as 300 to 400 uh, square meters. It is a pretty big house. And then there are, you know, affiliated smaller houses. And that's uh, that 
what gave us the hint that this must be a very, we would say, high scale um, house. And, and we will use that as inference to thinking about who were living there, right? So, and then smaller houses, probably 20, 30, 50 below 100 square meters. Um, and then we also can tell were these holes, because they were built with timber, so they would have uh, pillars. And those big houses tend to sometimes have um, pillars that still we can see having this hole they left um, can can be as, for instance, a meter in diameter. So it's a very strong, big pillar. Um, and that help us to imagine they must uh, um, use to support something very elaborate as an upper part, even though none of that survived today. And then smaller houses sometimes don't even have these paler holes. Um, they probably just used, uh, um, or if they have, then they have a very uh, thin um, kind of just um, this, we have to speak a little bit of construction technology um, that we see, um, particularly in the northern part, that um, sometimes they put these uh, wooden pillars uh, inside a wall and then just use the, uh, the, the mud to, to kind of plaster the, the wall. Mm. Um, and then once those collapsed, um, when we excavated them, what we see are those pillar holes. And the size of the pillar holes would give us hint about um, the, the kind of people lived there. So do we see, because they were made of wood and timber, do we see like, um, is there like written descriptions of what houses in this time would look like? And do we have any idea like what like what was the roof shape? Were they like what was like the shape of them? Great question. So I only spoke about the material remains, which are very little to go with. So um, and if you look at the Chinese uh, studies of Chinese architecture, they do go back to quite early and uh, they give you illustrations exactly what the upper part and particularly the roofs and uh, um, um, how how they actually build the house. Um, so uh, what are the sources for that? Then indeed there were, uh, for instance, pictorial um, evidence that uh, people painted houses. Uh, mm. Maybe not in a sense as today that we architects does, but more in an artistic way that fulfills other functions, but nonetheless left us evidence. And then um, another type of very interesting object that, that China, um, this period toward the latter part, the, um, the Han Dynasty, um, that what we have was people sometimes have ceramic uh, models of houses. Oh. And they, yes, um, actually, Metropolitan Museum has a, a few very interesting specimen um, there. Um, and then they buried them with their dead. Um, so that gave us the uh, 
kind of the evidence. We cannot fully trust whether or not this was really, you know, do they reflect faithfully of the houses looked like, or there are some imaginary uh, components. I also love what you mentioned is were there uh, descriptions about houses that people lived in. Yes, there were. Um, there were poetries, long poetries described, for instance, the Han capital, how luxurious um, that these, for instance, palaces were. Oh, what they say, what they say, what they say it looks like <laughs> in that ancient city. I loved this idea about what use, what the life was like in the past, um, because this really gave us a description of, it's very vivid. It's, you know, you can see that the, um, of course, some of the poets, um, they were uh, trying to please the emperor. They were trying to not only showing off their literary talents. So um, they are ex- extremely exquisite language to describe very mundane things, just a house, right? But you really see through, um, they describe the colors, they describe the decoration, they describe all kinds of uh, things that can be done in the houses. This we are speaking about, whether it is the king's palace, the emperor's palace, the imperial household, or high elites. So we have a lot more information particularly in the written tradition about that. But I think what they convey is really this very lively image that you can see um, people were enjoying life, um, that uh, that the, the material, particularly in the Han Dynasty, many of these poetry really as a way to um, to speak about the, the prosperity of the empire um, and uh, the way they can have a lot of uh, luxury goods today, we would say, coming from far away. So they would provide um, very detailed literary descriptions of those. Um, so put all of these together, then indeed, you know, we can uh, piece together um, that what would be like to live in the capital of China, of Han China. Um, at the time. Um, and there are uh, people try to do that through various ways. Yeah. So um, this is like kind of a like specific question, but did, were the houses ever two stories? Like were they ever two levels or were they all on one level? It's such a great question. I love that <laughs> because that this is a, a actually an academic question that uh, there were debate about it. Um, there were. Um, and this actually comes from, and you, you asked about there, whether there were evolutions and uh, uh, technical changes. And this also speaks to that aspect that we know actually quite early on. So this millennium, I'm, I'm going to that the early part of what we know was um, particularly aristocratic people, uh, kings, they began to build houses on high platforms. So uh, I think the idea is um, that that people thinking of them at the higher level of the social hierarchy. Interestingly, they are also occupying the physical space at a higher point. Mm. So um, there, we, we, when we're activating uh, city sites, usually the larger, bigger houses you find in higher grounds. Um, and then not only the ground, 
were higher already, and then they make these artificial mounts, and then they build houses. Oh, so so that must be, um, you know, this is going off a little bit of the imagination. Is so that means that that people can see those big houses, can see where their king was. Uh, inside the city physically because they are so higher up. Um, but those, since we only have the foundations, we really do not know whether or not they are multiple, multiple stories, but we do know they have a higher platform. But by the time of the end of this millennium, when we talk about the Han Dynasty, and that's what you can find in Metropolitan Museum, and that is these house models that are about that people made uh, in ceramic and then they buried uh, in the tombs, they show as there were multiple stories. Did they have stairs in the ceramic things or like ramps or like in the earlier ones that were on platforms? Like, did they, like, was there ever stairs? Um, I can't, I can't actually think of on top of my head of those house models. Um, but I think from outside, you don't see stairs. But given um, sometimes in those models, they also put little peoples in it. Uh, they have. Uh. And so and some of them were on the top level. So you have to imagine how did they get there? So it's probably inside. They must have stairs. Uh, Fine. <laughs> Because there's art historians, is it safe to assume that people would have had art in their houses? Like, was there a, it seems like there's an art culture going on at this time. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so again, I'm going to speak about the material remains that, uh, when we excavated, for instance, uh, the, the, uh, both Qin and Han, uh, imperial capital and supposedly were the, uh, the royal complexes, meaning where the emperors lived, um, there were finds of now are fragments of uh, seemingly uh, murals on the on the uh, wall. So meaning they have probably painted their wall. Um, and then we have descriptions of, uh, again, these written sources, they describe how um, they would paint all kinds of things on the wall. And Another um, indirect evidence would be, interestingly, later on when um, when the, the Chinese tombs changed the form a little bit. The earlier tombs were sort of just as, uh, well, there are big and small uh, pits, but they are really just pits. Um, they do not have a space you can walk in. But later, toward the end of this millennium, in the later Han Dynasty, uh, tombs began to change almost like underground house. And mm. so, so you actually have an architectural space, meaning you actually have walls in tombs. And then people began to paint those walls in the tombs. So these, we call them tomb murals. Many of our pictorial um, evidence from early period actually coming from tombs. So indeed, it seems that that, um, that, that was a, a tradition that people decorated. Probably, I would say, um, wealthy, well-off, or socially uh, privileged people would have uh, both the privilege, probably the means to do so, but certainly it seems to, um, they do decorate their internal uh, architectural space. 
So let's say that, like, I'm literally someone from early China. Mm-hmm. Picture it. Like, I'm super gay. I'm super <laughs> queer. I also want to wear, like, tons of heels and skirts and dresses. Like, the drapier, the better. I love a bun. Like, I am thriving in early China. And I'm and I'm a hairdresser. Like, it's literally me. Like, I'm a hairdresser who loves dick. Excuse my French, but, you know, I can't help it. I just had to say it. Uh, and I am in one of those dynasties, whichever one you feel like you can paint a more vivid picture of. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what is my life like? Like, what would it be like? Like, what, so my house would maybe be a little bit on the... Wait, but also, I was a hairstylist to an aristocrat. I wasn't just, like, at the local barber. I'm, like, at... Like, in fact, maybe I'm doing the literal emperor and his wife. Like, maybe I'm really all out, like, an aristocratic hairdresser to the stars who's super gay. Could I have... I know that's a lot. It's a lot. Maybe Uh, I'm just an aristocratic hairdresser and we leave my sexuality out of it because I don't know if that, like, if that translates. But what would, like, what what would I have done? I think I know my house would have been probably a little smaller because I definitely wouldn't have been married to a lady. I would have tried to avoid it and, like, done a bunch of hair. So maybe I would have had a smaller house. Uh, there was... Would I have been on a platform because I did the king's hair? Yeah, that's actually, I, I think what you just uh, uh, kind of put into this super interesting hypothetical, which I actually think... Um, clearly, there wouldn't be a... Identical copy of you, but I think this this uh, collection of identities and and traits would actually um, would be viable in early China. So we can actually try to imagine what your identical twin's life would be look like. Um, and I think to begin with, I wanted to say that even though we have a very little sources to begin with, um, I think homosexuality is actually um, quite common. Um, we, we, again, as I said, we don't have direct um, references, but we have indirect references. So, so this is actually not uncommon. And this was also, to a certain extent, um, that I think the the kind of moral, the judgmental part of that in China also came a little bit late when when the uh, particularly neo-Confucianism, that is kind of the second version of the early Confucianism, when it gets um, really focusing on regulating the society um, strictly according to one side of what they think would be kind of the proper versus improper. But in the Han Dynasty that we are talking about, and then early on, we have really very little evidence. So I think I'm going to speak about the Han Dynasty. We do know that, um, in fact, particularly among aristocrats, and maybe that is because we have more sources about them. Their old poetries were clearly uh, written for, um, for, for really expressing uh, emotional attachments, emotional uh, just you know, beautiful poetry, um, and we can we would think about whether today we would call either queer or you know they are talking about homosexual love. Um, so so I just wanted to say that was not something uncommon uh, even in ancient times. Um, and then now go back to if we imagine. Um, a hairdresser, uh, a person who will be um, 
working for aristocrats or even the emperors and empresses. Um, I would imagine that this person would or would be living in uh, together with the royal family. So you probably right. So you probably and we. This is something that we don't have direct evidence for, but indirectly we can infer that um, because we know the royal family has a large number of servants that that's work for them. And we know the royal complexes, uh, complexes are really large enough to include most people to work on site, so to speak. Um, and, and we also need to think about, um, the, the kind of social relationship that, uh, we are talking about slavery society. Um, so, mm. so we know very little about where their servants came from. Uh, later, sometimes we know that, that there were, um, that there were transactional, for instance, you can buy, your servants, male servants, uh, female servants. Um, but in terms of the royal family, we know very little about where they acquired all these people serving them. So if I was a royal hairdresser, mm-hmm. like I wouldn't necessarily like have aristocratic parents. Like I could have been like a commoner or That's something. Right. I think as a commoner or um, since, you know, we are talking about hereditary slavery, um, that could be just for generational. Oh, Initially, a house, a family, how did they get into slavery? You know, that, uh, that scenario can be very complex. But I think then, um, for general, we we do know that, um, people's status tend not to change very much, not dramatically. So, uh, we speak a lot of professions, a lot of, um, kinds of jobs actually almost inherently hereditary from the highest level socially prestige jobs to the lowest we would think that you know the most um, menu labor jobs tend to be uh, hereditary meaning that you your your family has been doing this for generations um so I don't think, you know, this is a, such a good question. We actually don't know a lot about what people did to their hair and how did they do that in ancient, uh, in early China, even though we know they clearly cared about their hair. We know, um, we have, um, we know both men and women have long hairs. So they actually need definitely to do something with their hair. And we have so much evidence to say there's a lot of hair accessories, even extensions. Uh, we find that in tombs, um, and, uh, uh, combs, all kinds of combs, um, and, uh, hairpins. So, uh, made of, uh, of various from bones to jade to ivory. Um, yeah. And, Gold. So, so clearly hair was a very big part of people's, uh, kind of, um, carrying of their experience. But we know so little, or I think maybe it's just we haven't looked about who were doing that. Clearly these aristocrats or the emperors were not doing that themselves. That, that part probably we can, um, be certain, but there must be people actually specializing in taking care of um, the the appearances of um, these people they work for. 
Do we have any like written stories of like hair? Like, what if I was working for like a family? Is there an aristocratic family? Is there a hairstylist? And like their village got like taken over by like a different dynasty? Or like, what if the family I worked for, like, what if they all died or something? Like, do I have to go find another family to work for? Like, is there any like, do any like early Chinese hairdressers like, was there an early Chinese Sally Hirschberger or something like that? Like anyone like wrote about? Not that I'm aware of, but you know, my um, I I cannot claim I know every sources. Especially, um, I think if I were going to look for those, I probably going to look for um, kind of the the the. the anecdotal side of historical records, even literary um, works where they would go in, into daily life in uh, more details. Um, and official history tend to be focusing on affairs of the state, right? Uh, oh. but going back to your question, I think it's here, who you work for actually going to matter. Because interestingly, if you work for an emperor and then this was the last emperor of the dynasty, um, given what we know about how, how dynasty ended, how power transitions happened, uh, that involves usually a lot of violence. So most of the last emperor of a dynasty tend not to survive the divide, the minds mm. of the empire. So, um, and a lot of times capitals got sacked, palaces got burned, and I would imagine people got killed. Um, so, so there's a higher chance if you actually work for the emperor. And if this happened to be the last emperor during these kind of um, dangerous times, then um, they're probably a physical threat. So, so, but for instance, if you were not working for a high noble, high aristocrat, but more of um, kind of just a professional um, middle level hairdresser, um, then dynastic changes actually have very little um, impact directly on both your physical safety or your um, livelihood. And, and this is true, I think, for the vast majority of the people in ancient times. These political dynastic changes tend now to affect uh, the vast majority of people. Meaning that if the emperor changed, if the dynasty changed, right. people carrying out their lives. So, so in that sense that, that, yeah, you probably, you probably are going to work for the same family if mm. they survived. Um, right. So, or you, yeah, you can certainly, um, to, to serve other people, but it's really during times of power transition, particularly dynastic changes, it is really at the highest level would, um, would really live and die with the dynasty, so to speak. So between 1000 BCE and then like common era, mm-hmm. like, like what would like a, just like a Tuesday morning for like a Qin King and his family been like, was there a Tuesday? Did they have weeks like that? That's a great question. 
technically speaking, not exactly the Tuesday we would think about. So Chinese calendar uh, is. It's based on, it is a solar lunar calendar. So today we, when we talk about lunar year, we are not exactly the Chinese calendar or East Asia part, most part of East Asian using the lunar calendar is not exactly a lunar uh, calendar. It is a combination of solar and, and lunar. Um, and in China, the uh, particular, so how do they ca- um, count time? So the day is about the same. How do you divide the day into, now we divide it into 24 hours. Uh, that was different. There were different ways. But um, sort of a day has 24 hours, I think. That's probably still true because we still observe the time, you know, the sun coming out and then the right. sun sinking down. So, so that part, um, is the same, but how do they count in a sense as our week, which nowadays we, we count about seven days? That's where it differs. Uh, the Chinese calendar has a 60 day cycle. So it's, so we have sort of a seven day, right? Right. Um, and then 30 days because 30 days is the, the solar, uh, um, yes. moment. But Chinese calendar has this, this lunar calendar. We called it or eventually, um, I think today we actually more accurately would call it agricultural calendar because that's uh, a lot of them corresponds to seasonal changes. It's very mm. important for the farmers to know the time, but they want to know the time mostly for understanding the field. And and understanding when to plant seeds and when to harvest. So um, 60 day is a cycle. And uh, within the 60 days, what would be the next unit is actually related to the moon. So when we talk about the month in English, um, in Chinese it's called a yue. And a yue means both month and the moon. And that is because mm. the month is actually based on the, you observe the moon. So you have the full moon, you have the half moon, you have the new moon. And all of those uh, are markers of time within the 60 days. So what would like a waxing moon, what exactly. would like a waxing crescent moon day be like for Chien King and his family? Like in just a typical peacetime, like... E, e, yeah, that word that you said, but I couldn't repeat. I couldn't remember how to say. It. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, so. So I think the the point here is to imagine what a king's life, daily life, was like. And I would think, I think a Qin king probably was an early riser. That this this particular region, um, that they they really um because. Um, they're environmentally speaking were not as, for instance, the coastal area. The coastal area, they probably have a much more relaxing life because the environment was rich enough to support, um, you know, a, a really broad base of, uh, of economy. And so, uh, but the West, when we speak of Qin, that's Northwest. Um, that's already bordering the Tibetan plateau and uh, uh, the highland, the Lowe's plateau. And so um, 
their environmentally speaking was a little bit uh, tough. So that requires people work really hard. And I、mm. think Xin really interestingly had that reputation of being、uh, being tough. They eventually unified China.、Uh, one of the theories was about this is a very hardworking and tough group of people, and they also mixed with the normas. Further, um, north, uh, north and west with them. So I would imagine the king probably also get up quite early, and they, um, when they began to think about, uh, to to really try to envision that, um, how I can go further. East, how I can begin to unify the realm, how I'm going to strengthen ourselves.、Um, Qin had later a very famous reform and a famous strategist, and talks about、um, to to become a stronger country, become a stronger state. You need to do two things. One is to enrich the state. The other is to strengthen the army. So,、um, and enrich the state part. They really focus in agriculture,、um, and so, so I think taking together, I would think、um, the the emperor, the king, would have to set up an example、um, to to let the ministers, his subjects, work harder.、Um, then the king would also need to、um, exemplify. What was kind of the collective goal was, but beyond that, it's really difficult to imagine what a typical day would be. I would say probably more than kind of just、uh, getting up, get ready for the day.、Um, there must be,、um, for instance, depending on the day. Let's say if it's the first.、Um, Day of the the month, usually there's a lot of rituals affiliated with the season, and particularly、um, for the king, that not only you are the head of the state, but you are also the head of your lineage.、Um, so you have obligations both to people, but also to your ancestors. So you need to fulfill both obligations and. To the ancestors, a lot of times that involves making sacrifices, going to、um, provide the ancestor, or even periodically report to your ancestor that what you have done, and continue to receive blessing from them. So,、um, so, so I would imagine that you know possibly、um, those obligations would. Figuring into a king's day, a king's schedule as well.、Um, then, possibly, this is also the time states has a lot of diplomatic relations as well. Sometimes we know there are invoices being sent from the other king, and then the king had to receive. Those invoices, not so different from today, that the president need to receive dignitaries from the other states.、Um, so, so I think that in that sense, you can imagine it's probably going to be a busy day as well. So he's got diplomatic things. What about like for like would would they have set like trade rules and like had to do like. Like say, like what's allowed to sell, what's not allowed to sell, like absolutely, yeah. So、um, I think. 
probably from the second half of the first millennium BCE, we started to have uh, documents and indications of um, indeed the state uh, would like to um to to both develop what we would call a market economy, right? People, uh, when you have surpluses that from the agricultural production, then people would like to be able to do something with it. And they would trade, they would sell uh, on market. And we do know market was, uh, was already in place. But it is in this time and particularly getting into the empire that they really, the state really began to have an interest uh, in regulating the market. And in fact, the state would become a player of the market. So um, there are, the state would regulate price and would also uh, regulate, just as you said, what are allowed to be traded, what are not allowed to be traded. For instance, the state have an interest to, to not let the citizens have access to um, the, in today's term, we would say that with national security, that today you don't want regular citizens to have access to nuclear weapons. And when we kind of translate that back to uh, ancient time, then um, you do not want your citizens, your subjects have uh, the liberty to make weapons and mm. to trade weapons and because that can potentially be a threat to the state or to the to the emperor right so we know for instance in the han dynasty um that metal or particularly iron um that was regulated was a huge problem for the state for not only the iron tools was the most uh, cutting edge technology of the time, but also because iron was uh, also used to, um, to, to make and, and copper as well to you, uh, to make coinage. So, uh, the state also have an uh, interest in, um, to control the economy. So there isn't these, you know, super inflation, which also happened in um in Han Dynasty later on as well when that went out of control when uh private citizens began to make money, counterfeit money. Um, mm. so, so the state definitely have a huge economic interest and uh, play a huge role in um, the state economy and the market economy as well. So if the Qian Dynasty was more like you know, scrappy, they ended up reunifying everyone. I would imagine that maybe that king wouldn't be like, was, were they known to like, you know, not be getting all the pampering? They were like maybe having a hairdresser on their place because they were more like, we get it done. We got to like get it together. Or is that not accurate? Or did they still like no, pamper themselves I, too? Yeah, I think it is. A, uh, I think at the beginning, Clearly, because they came from this almost remote, particularly from today's point of view, that the, the remote area and supposedly, you know, had, uh, has less developed, uh, um, technology, even though in terms of war making technology, they were highly developed. They were really, they, they are close to where, you know, the, where, uh, um, horse riders and chariots right. come from. So that's why they are, they were militarily extremely savvy. But in terms of, for instance, how to enjoy life, that's probably less so. And we can tell from their material culture, they tend to lean to the modest side. How, 
However, we do know the first emperor had probably the most luxury you can imagine of a mausoleum built for himself. That's the that's that's the Terracotta army, right? We know oh. he, he built this entire underground palace town for himself that took about 10 years uh, to build. So he, he actually started out very early on and, uh, and based on the limited excavation we had now, it, it's just extremely luxury so that you can imagine almost anything would be, um, would be considered as luxury, as rare. He has a huge quality of that. He took that to the afterlife with him. So, so again, the caveat is whether or not a uh, underground burial, what, when people think about when I die, how I wanted to be buried, um, was that a reflection uh, to what extent that was a reflection of the actual life? But I think in this case, it's probably reasonable to say his actual life probably wasn't too far off from the luxury he was, at least he was capable of enjoying. Whether or not that was the case, we do not know. Uh, interestingly, we know very, very little about the first emperor. But later, the Han Dynasty, because Han Dynasty has more emperors, we know more about them. There were emperors who were living in extremely lavish um, lifestyle, really enjoying goods coming from afar and uh, from just, you know, the empire. The empire was big enough. Um, and those emperors, a lot of times, would be criticized by historians, court historians of the time sometimes, but mostly later historians as um, at these emperors who were not focusing on governing or being a good emperor, but too indulgent. Who was like one of the most indulgent emperors from the Han Dynasty time? Uh, there's actually one example. I, I, I don't know if um, he would be the most indulgent, but he certainly was the most interesting one. Uh, be, also because we just recently found his tomb and his life story was intriguing. Technically, he was the ninth emperor of the Han Dynasty, but he was on the throne only for 27 days. Oh. Um, so he, and then he was deposed and then he was demoted. The next emperor was very suspicious of him. So kind of put him almost in a way like a house arrest to, to really monitoring, um, him and, and then later relocated him to a very remote corner of the empire. So, so kind of the next emperor was also, this was during a time that, uh, the succession was very, um, fraud, so to speak. Um, so, so the next emperor was not solely legitimate, so to speak, that he was not a direct descendant. This whole thing started out the emperor who died didn't have a son, didn't have an heir. And so the next emperor has to be selected by the region, by the powerful, uh, generals of the time from the other, um, lineages. And this particular one, um, his name was Liu He, and he was selected as a 17 years old. 
um, as the next emperor. So he was called upon. He lived in the East, um, quite actually quite a good life. And then he was kind of getting involved in these palace intrigue, these political struggles as a 17 years old. And then he got called upon to the capital and being made the emperor. And then 27 days later, he was deposed. And the, the, the reason I brought him up was because, um, the official reason of his, uh, he was deposed was because so this is written in the Han Dynasty official history was uh, accusation of him being extremely indulgent that just uh, he was uh, materially indulgent he was morally decadent he was not fit he was not a fit to be emperor of course the the actual situation probably much more complicated than that. So his story, but the interesting thing was his story didn't end at when he was deposed. Deposed. So he was deposed, was sent back home first, and then was relocated to a very remote corner. And then he lived until 34. So he lived actually, he, he still died relatively young. Um, but for the rest of his life, he lived as, um, you know, a kind of under high suspicion of, of the royal court. Um, but then when he died, because we find his tomb actually just back in 2015, his burial was really, really luxury, uh, way mm. beyond, um, his later status. So Han Dynasty, particularly the, the higher society actually has these, what we call the sumptuary rules, meaning that what you can use has to be corresponding to your status. So if you are mm. a local king, you are allowed to use a certain set of things. But if you are the emperor, then you can use the highest level. And if you are neither, then um, you are not supposed to use a lot of things. But his burial really bear a lot of uh, markers of his, because he had so many different identities. He was once emperor, yes, very, very short lived. But and he was also a local king. He inherited that from his father. And then later he was this minor noble um, of the uh, offshoot of the royal family. Um, so his tomb really exhibit um, that the many different identities he assumed in life. But going back now to your original question, that, uh, that he clearly was blamed or his luxury lifestyle. I think we can safely assume he still lived a pretty luxury, indulgent lifestyle, whether or not to the extent, um, the accusation of him being, um, for instance, really just day and night enjoying, um, these, these, um, Entertainment from beautiful women, the palace women, um, dancers, performers, and not caring about being the emperor and the governing. Um, that part we do not know because clearly the historical records had, um, had a political motive to portraying him in such negative light. 
So with like the dancers and performers and like the palace women and stuff, were they almost like, who were the people that were monitoring an emperor to be like too indulgent or not? And like, were some of those people used as like, you know, pawns to like try to get the emperor people in pro in trouble? And also like, I think about like a more specific, like what would have happened to like, the dancers if an emperor had been seen to be too indulgent and maybe it was like these dancers or the performers that were seen to be like the issue would Mm -hmm. they ever be like punished or removed absolutely yeah so i think that when we think about these really high stakes situations most of the people involved that on one hand you enjoy the privilege when things were good um and but when things went Badly, uh, people who in closer proximity to uh, power tend to also fall very badly. Um, so speaking of a dancer, I think it is kind of interesting to mention another example, almost a legendary example, was Emperor Cheng of Han. He reigned from year 18 to 7. So it's actually not a very long reign. And this, this, um, was common during the later part of the Han that emperors, um, became, that become more frequent to have these, um, successions. In any case, so Emperor Cheng had an empress, um, used to be a dancer. Um, so, so her name was Zhao Feiyan and uh, it doesn't matter. So her family name was Zhao. But Fei Yan literally means flying swallow. And the reason, whether or not that was her real name, we actually do not know, likely not. Uh, but the reason she had that uh, name or known historically in that name was because she was a fantastic dancer. And she also extremely light. So this clearly is a legend. So reportedly she was so light she could dance on uh on on the uh palm of a person. Uh so she was clearly a very skilled dancer and she actually I think probably it's fair to say she belongs to the the kind of um the servant class because the emperor actually spotted her um in um in in a performance elsewhere and then uh he was really uh attracted to her and she was clearly also a very beautiful woman and so she actually eventually being made emperor empress um so so this is kind of uh, a rare case i would say that this kind of social status changes but in terms of other um, dancers' performance, we do know this was a big part of the court life, that uh, playing all sorts of musical uh, instruments and dancers and uh, serving uh, of the aristocrat in um, banquet, in uh, even sometimes in these ritual performances, festivals. Um, and we know very little about the individual once, except in these exceptional cases. 
Okay, I was wondering about like ec- up, like upward economic mobility and thinking that that probably didn't happen if so many jobs were hereditarily passed down. So that's interesting that we came across an example of it happening. So then I know earlier you said that like there's indirect examples of homosexuality. So from like from one of these dynasties, would there have just when you say indirect, like would there have been like a poem written by like an emperor maybe about like a male dancer and his court that's like not talking about explicit sexual things and it's like that's not how bros talk about each other so they mu- there must have been something going on sort of a thing right and in fact even in um in standard history what would be recorded were um what would be the term i think people use that um i think probably what would i i think the the uh standard term would be dentis so, uh, so actually some of the emperors would have male companions mm. and that's actually open secret, if you will. I don't, I don't even think that's a secret. That's clearly what's pervaded. Um, so, and sometimes we also, I, I don't think I cannot think of, uh, example of lesbians, let's say empresses have. Mm female companions, but the male uh, aristocrat and particularly emperors, we do know that they uh, there were um, recordings about their relationship with other men. I mean, I hate how this like gay patriarchy that <laughs> like seeps into like queer stuff. This is now like the second ancient time where like ancient lesbians that I know of did not get their due. And you know that there was some cute ancient lesbian, maybe like catching the glance of another lady. And they were just like, Ooh, Ooh, let's meet in like the back behind the platform and make out. I'm sure that that had to have happened at least once, but I have like 10 more questions and we, I have to keep asking them. So what about like, cause I think you mentioned this time or last time, like more like nomadic people, which mm-hmm. makes me think about like traveling. And that also makes me think about like, what if you like were born as like, let's say like a craftsperson, but then you like fucked up your local king's statue. Like he paid you to commission it and you fucked it up. You made his wife look like a nightmare <laughs> and you turn it in and you're like, I'm going to face local ruin. Could you like get on a horse or like some other means of travel and like get to another town and like maybe try to change your identity and like not get caught. Like, is there any stories of anyone doing something like that and getting caught or like, you know, identity things from this time? Absolutely. Um, so I think of what we know, um, from, for instance, legal cases and legal code. So, uh, there are, um, legal stipulations about particularly what would be called in technical terms as bonded servants. Um, so so mm. basically slaves. Um, so slaves do run away. Um, and uh, then the, the slave owners and then um, some of them were actually, they were, they would be called official slaves. They work for the state. They work for local government. They work for all levels of government. And then they would uh, try to catch them, right? They would try to recover them. We actually have disputes about the slaves, for instance, as uh, 
some slaves run away and then being uh, sheltered by another person. And there there were lawsuits uh, between the two. Okay, so now this is kind of like a bummer of a question to end up on, but I feel like I need to ask it because it's something that I never realized. I never realized that like having enslaved people in early China was like a th- was a, a thing. So was that like, because if you were part of a dynasty or if you were in a city that got conquered by a different city that had like a different situation going on, would they just... So it, was it racially based slavery? Was it like, was it like geographic based? Was it religious? Like what? And we literally don't have that much time left, but I just feel like I, I have to ask that question because it's something I didn't realize. Yeah, I think this is, this is a very, very complicated question. We know very little about ancient slavery. Uh, we do know it existed and it actually is practiced quite a lot. And there were episodes, for instance, during the two Han transition, there was this very brief period called Wang Mang, kind of uh, he established the Xin Dynasty. One of the things he wanted to do was actually to, so to speak, to abolish slavery. Basically to, you no longer are able to buy and sell slaves, but he it didn't succeed. Uh, but I think overall what we know, um, it's probably less race-based just given the the what we would call today the racial composition um, are, are very different in in that part of China, in, in that part of East Asia. Um, we do know, for instance, on the Silk Road, the, the slave trade was a very uh, flourished trade. Um, but I think what uh, where does the slave came from? Um, and what I would say probably would be, um, I think sometimes the slavery, the reason it wasn't well known in, in, um, in the, um, in, in the case of China was it's, um, terminology wise, it was very different. So it's always translated as servants instead of slaves. Um, or there, because there's a whole cluster of terms. And I think, um, that this is historians were hesitating at least, uh, early on, um, using slave because we do not know the nature of their status. Um, but, but certainly that seems to indicate, um, that the, for instance, the familial, um, relationship for instance, uh, economic transactions. Um, so, so all these hallmark of slavery, I think, were there. But um, the the study of ancient slavery in China, like these days, actually, still, I, I would say, still pretty preliminary. And uh, um, I think the uh, one monograph we have about slavery in ancient China probably dated back. I, I could be wrong about the date, but. 1940s, uh, but afterwards, just the ancient China, there weren't much of a study. Uh, but afterwards, for instance, in medieval time, there were a lot. Uh, when we know more about the Silk Road, when the Arabs came through, um, the, the boats 
uh, on land, but also through the sea, then we know um, the the Arabs were actually really a, a, a very big intermediary in terms of slave trade in Eurasia. Uh, but in ancient China, unfortunately, we know very little. We began to, um, I think, looking at a group of people that would be um, slaves, but began to think of their lives um, in those terms. This is also quite new. Um, interestingly, actually, my husband is teaching a course uh, of slavery in ancient China, so I probably should ask him <laughs> more. We should do a follow-up episode with him. That would be really fascinating. So, but I think what that indicates was mo- uh, the actual physical mobility, uh, probably not as far as like these days you can run to another continent, but you can certainly run to another, uh, district, another county. Um, and there, there are, uh, procedures to pursue these running away people. Um, or, just generally speaking, I think the, the mobility is still very limited, um, but there are um, certain kinds of people would have um, broader mobility, for instance, the soldiers. So we do know mm. that uh, the empire is huge. And uh, so at the borders, particularly the northwest border, where there are uh, threats from the, the nomadic empire, um, and there are these garrison towns, and uh, um, you need to basically draft the soldiers to put them into those garrison towns to defend the border. Um, and we know from documents um, that they they still tend to be drafted uh, uh, around in surrounding um, provinces, but some of them actually coming from far away. And sometimes we know there are travels, there are these relocation of uh, the forces, if you will, uh, moving the soldiers. It sometimes can be over a thousand kilometers. It's very expensive to do so. So it doesn't happen very often, but it did happen. And then Travelers, uh, I think most frequent travelers in, uh, let's say in the Han Dynasty were officials. So, uh, many officials would go on business trips and, uh, the, the bureaucracy is diligent enough. You actually have to keep a diary of your official ah. travels. So we have those records to indicate that how far people travels, but it's very specific group of people. Did people from early China like ever travel so far as like Egypt or like the Middle East and then come back and like tell the people in early China about it? Like what's the farthest anyone ever traveled and then like came back and told the people about it? So we do have one extremely famous example of it, but not as far to the Egypt. Uh, But I think probably as far as we would call Central Asia today. Um, and this was actually, uh, his name was Zhang Qian. So this was a very famous event. This was during the Han Dynasty uh, when the, the empire was in its phase of expansion. So this has been called the Great Han Expansion. And under Emperor Wu, Emperor Wu was an earlier Han emperor, um, was, was a very uh, capable but also extremely ambitious emperor. So he really would like to expand particularly northwestwards into what would be today um, 
let's say Xinjiang and then Central Asia. So he actually sent this uh, this official named Zhang Qian, and his journey was very famous because at first he he actually was caught. Um, on the road because this is sort of into hostile territories. Some of these little states, smaller states, oasis states have a better relationship with Han, but most of them were hostile. And, and this trip, so, you know, to be honest, this is espionage, right? You send an envoy to trying to uh, a scout, basically. And so he was caught and he actually being held hostage for over 10 years. Uh, Importantly, he actually got married locally, uh, but he always wanted to finish his mission. So he he sought for opportunities to run away and he eventually succeeded. And he didn't turn back coming back home. He actually went on. And so it took him really uh, a really long time to to kind of finish the task he uh, his emperor gave him, and then he came back. He actually reported uh, what was the situation um, like in the western regions, and that helped Han quite a lot. And that also has been uh, he was credited as the one who actually opened up the so called Silk Road. Professor Guo, I feel like I learned. So much more. I feel so grateful for you. You are oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and I thank you so much for sharing your time with us and your expertise. We have to have you back. There's so much about early China that we still <laughs> have to learn about. How could you ever teach us everything in like, you know, two hours? No, indeed, that would be very, very challenging. But uh, I also wanted to thank you, B. Um, just be curious about early China. That is something doesn't, I think I've already said that before. It doesn't happen very often. And uh, I'm so happy to have this opportunity to reach to uh, more people and uh, to, to learn about early China, which I'm obsessed about. But I'm so happy to see, um, to, to have uh, really interesting from the the broader audience. Well, this will not be our last episode, Professor Guo. I'm so grateful for you again. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Venice. My guest this week was Professor Zhui Guo. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Queen! If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson and our transcriptionist is Alita Vunja. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Emily Bosick. 